Well, good morning. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors at FEC, and I'm glad that I get to be here with you this morning. And welcome to those of you who are joining online. Thank you for taking the time on a Sunday morning. Pastor Morgan said there was two things you need to know, and there was one about baptism. And we were sitting there going, what was number two? And, and I'm trying to think up a second thing. Here's a second thing you would need to know. I'll tell you this. I want to say thank you to you for praying for me. I go for my quarterly neuro assessment tomorrow morning. And one of the cool things that I'm grateful for your prayer for me is I've regained almost full control of my left hand. It is completely pain-free. That's a very cool thing. I still get all sorts of challenges, but God has been so good. And thank you for praying for me. I appreciate that. There are places that we visit at times that leave an indelible mark upon us. One of the places that stuck in my mind as a teenager still at university was a trip that I'd made to Switzerland backpacking in Europe. And we'd gone and stayed in this little village called Muren, which is high in the Swiss Alps in a valley called Lauterbrunnental. And it was just gorgeous. There's these sheer cliff faces, little perched village up way up on the top of nowhere, cows that are mooing and they've got flowers in their hair and bells around their neck. It's people playing the Alphorn. You think it's ridiculous, but it really is true. And I ended up living in Switzerland for a number of years. It's how life actually is. People just do this sort of stuff. But the, the mountains were so majestic and I'd never seen anything like it. And 30 years later, I had the chance to go back in a church snow trip. We'd gone down there for a week, and it was exactly the way I remembered it. It stuck in my mind for all those times. Another place that I remember so vividly is Berlin. Jillian and I had started dating in 1985, and five months afterwards, she left and went to Germany. And, well, I don't know what that says about me or our relationship, but I figured I had some ground I had to make up. So I went to visit her and we went over there and I was really doing my best to impress her, not really doing a lot of sightseeing, but I did see some stuff. And the wall as it existed then was at the bottom of her street. And that got quite exciting because there was a little kid who lived next door to her that went climbing up on the wall and fell over into the other side, which if you know how things were with security guards and wires and dogs and bombs. And that was a really bad thing trying to get this kid back out of there. The next year I went back again and it was more success. I'd got a ring on her finger by that point. She was wearing a rock and I knew I was doing better, which meant we could go and see some things and travel around. And it was a long time till we went back there again. It was 1998. We went back for a visit to see people that she had been staying with at the time and visit friends there. And it was remarkable to see a city that I thought I knew so very well that changed in such huge ways as the nation had reunified again. Places where it was difficult to go, you could walk along and stroll and have a coffee. One of the places that I visited, I think left one of the most lasting marks in my life was New York. I went there with our son Callum in 2017, I think it was. And we had a chance to visit the 9-11 Memorial. And I don't think I've ever been anywhere, well, probably apart from the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. I don't think I've been anywhere that left such a mark upon me. The quietness, the sense of being in a very sacred place as you watched and heard stories and saw exhibits, both of the horror and of the courage of people that day. Sometimes people make an impression upon us like that too. Sometimes it's the famous you get to hang out with for 30 seconds taking a selfie. Sometimes it's conversations we've had with other people. Sometimes it's just people you don't get to see very often. Our little grandchildren, Avery and James. I remember them. I see photos of them every day. They mark my life. And this summer, as we read through these 13 letters that Paul wrote to various people in churches, we're trying to figure out what's going on. What's he saying to them? What's he really getting at? 
And today we're in this letter to a church in Philippi, the letter to the Philippians. It's probably the most endearing letter that Paul wrote. I mean, he wrote to the Galatians and kind of gets going to them. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Well, that's charming, isn't it? It's not going so well for them. He obviously didn't love them that much, which it doesn't sound like it. But he gets to the Philippians and he gets all soft about them. They've made some sort of impression upon him. And he's made an impression upon them. Look at how he describes them in chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. That's a long way from who's bewitched you, idiots. They've made an impression upon him as he had upon them. And as you read through this letter, the verses in it, maybe it's made an impression upon you. It certainly has upon me. It's probably one of the only passages of Scripture that I really worked hard to try and memorize the whole thing. It's made a big impression upon me. And you read verses like this that I love to remind myself of. When Paul says this, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God's never letting go. He'll figure it out. And he says this, for me, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain. I learned that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Became a very real moment in my life. I've told you the story of that. Those of you who have watched it perhaps online of where that verse mattered so much to me. Or he'll encourage everybody in chapter four and he'll say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. He makes a comment that we quite often take out of context, but nevertheless, we love the words, I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. And my God will fully supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Wow. They're verses we don't ignore. I wonder what these Philippians thought when they read all of this. How did they respond? Were they smiling? Were they excited? Were they trusting God for this? Or were they thinking, eh, maybe, maybe not, who knows? We've been talking about the fact that we send texts to people. And we know it's got there because it'll say delivered. And then we'll know it's been opened because you'll get a double tick mark and it'll tell you that it's been read. That's where the title comes from, left on read. People read things, but they don't get back to you. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, or last weekend I think it was, I sent somebody a text. They still haven't replied. I know they opened it. I sent it in the morning. They read it at one minute past 11. It was 10 days ago. <laughs> one more week and it's going public. I will see your name into this camera for all eternity. <laughs> read and no response. But isn't that sometimes the truth of our lives? Read and no response. Isn't that us? Well, let's see what's going on here. The city of Philippi was named after King Philip II of Macedon, Macedonia. He was Alexander the Great's dad. He took the city from another group of people called the Thracians, 360 BC. But it really became famous more when you get into Roman times there. Octavian, who would later be known as Caesar Augustus when Jesus was born, Octavian was involved with a struggle for control of Rome with a couple of guys, the armies of Cassius and Brutus. They assassinated his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, the whole et tu brute, knife in the back sort of thing. And he defeated these guys in a battle at Philippi in 42 BC, and the two of them killed themselves at the end of it. In 31 BC, 
almost nine years later, Octavian fought another big battle. This time it was with Anthony and Cleopatra. You know the story of them, perhaps. And soldiers from Octavian's victorious army decided to stay in Philippi, to colonize it, to make it into a Roman outpost and to stabilize the area. They lived there instituting Roman laws, Roman worship, Roman customs, the Roman language, Roman dress styles, Roman food. It's what happened. Everything began to change and become very Roman where they lived. And Philippi became a very Roman city. Interestingly, Octavian, as he becomes Caesar Augustus, we see the rise and the beginnings of emperor worship inside the empire. There's an inscription that was found. It's dated 9 BC. That's nine years roundabout from the birth of Jesus. And the, the inscription says this, Augustus is a savior for us and those who come after us. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings. Glad tidings is just a nice English translation of the word gospel. Augustus, savior of the world, this is the gospel. That's what the Romans thought. That's what they believed. In other words, Caesar is Lord. He's our savior. This is the gospel. Well, loyalty had its rewards. These soldiers and their families living in Philippi were given the legal status of resident citizens of Rome. It meant they could cut back on their taxes. They had all sorts of things regarding property rights that were enhanced. It was a great opportunity. But the state also demands allegiance. And in Roman Philippi, Caesar is Lord. Some of Paul's readers may well have been citizens of Rome. He was himself. Some of them were looks as though they were facing some form of oppression, perhaps imprisonment. Some of them were suffering economically because they'd forsaken the kind of the Roman gods and they were doing something different. People didn't want to do business with them and life was becoming complicated. Certainly the little church in Philippi was having somewhat of an identity crisis. Who are we? What are we supposed to do in these difficult times? And Paul takes their problem seriously and reminds them right in chapter 1, verse 1, that they are saints, God's holy people, because they're in Christ. This is the language of belonging and of identification with God and his purposes. Everyone who is in Christ has a brand new identity. He says to them later on, our citizenship is in heaven. And it's from there, not from Rome. It's from there that we're expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding them that they have a higher loyalty to a far superior kingdom. Their new identity it relativizes every other identity or loyalty. Caesar isn't Lord, and Jesus is Lord. And allegiance to Christ has profound effects upon every aspect of life. Jesus is Lord. Can you see it? These are fighting words. They really are. This citizenship in heaven is open to everybody. And it's so radically different to Roman citizenship. This heavenly citizenship is the gift of God through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a free gift to everyone who would receive it, who accepts Jesus as their Lord. Have you? Have you experienced God's gift like that? His gift of forgiveness? His gift of being brought into his family? His gift of a new identity and of heavenly citizenship? Do you know that? Do you follow Jesus? Just as in the ancient world, people would talk about all roads lead to Rome. In reality, when we think about it, all thinking about God leads us to Jesus. 
It leads us to Jesus. It's because of Jesus we can know who God is. It's because of Jesus we can know what God is like. And it's because of Jesus we can know what humans, what we are actually supposed to look like and how we're supposed to live. Jesus is the lens that we can see through to see who God is. But he's also the mirror that we can look into and see how we should be looking and who we should be and who we could become fully human the way God intended. But in saying Jesus is Lord, we're also saying Caesar is not. Or maybe in our context, you'd have to make a translation like this. Donald Trump is not Lord. Justin Trudeau is not Lord. Elon Musk is not Lord. Vladimir Putin is not Lord. Our allegiance is not to a political party. We don't aspire to power. We follow the lamb who was slain. We don't demand rights. We follow the lamb in the way of the lamb who surrendered. We value others beyond ourselves. We humble ourselves. We look to the interests of others. We choose them over ourselves because Jesus is Lord. Paul's first encounter with the people of Philippi is recorded in Acts 16. And in our last series, I actually had the opportunity to preach through Acts chapter 16. Paul had had a vision one night, a call that came to him from Macedonia, where Philippi is located. And in Acts 16, we read this. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he'd seen the vision... We immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Paul and his team, they set sail. They arrive in Europe for the very first time. Turns out they don't meet the guy at all. He's nowhere to be seen. But they do meet a lady called Lydia, a wealthy business lady who invited them to come to her home. She became a follower of Jesus. They baptized her and they stayed with her as they led their mission in the little town of Philippi. And a church was born in her house right there and then. It didn't take very long for Paul and his missions team to get into trouble. They'd freed some girl who was being held by an evil spirit and people were getting angry about it. They ended up being arrested on false charges. They were beaten. They were put into prison. And if you know the story in Acts 16, that night in prison, there was an earthquake, an earthquake that opened all the prison doors somehow, an earthquake that broke all the handcuffs. Everybody's chains fell off. And as people are waiting there to see what would happen, the prison officer, the jailer of the prison comes to say something and he comes to the most important question and decision of his entire life. And we read this in Acts 16. He, the jailer, he brought them outside and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. I mean, it's no wonder Paul made an impression on these people arriving from nowhere, all this chaos going on, earthquakes being set free, the jailer becoming a follower of Jesus too. He made an impression there, but they did upon him too. Their faith in a difficult place, their faith in Jesus to truly follow him. And his affection for these people is evident as you read your way through the letter as he wrote to them. And he wrote from yet another prison and yet another city. And what was he saying to them? What was the point of the letter? It's personal enough that he really has a whole lot of personal news in there, keeping them updated. Talks of friendship and fellowship and partnership and encouragement. He takes the time to express gratitude for their gifts that they sent to him while he was in prison. 
One of the team down there, a guy called Epaphroditus, there's a big name, he brought their gifts with him when he came to visit Paul because in those days, prison was a lot different than it is now. It's not a pleasant experience now. It was worse then. There was no food unless somebody brought you the food. There were no change of clothes unless somebody brought you the clothes. You just get locked up and you get left to rot. That's how it played out. You needed somebody to care. And in this case, Paul recognizes the Philippians that they stepped up. When there was nobody to really care, they did. And they sent Epaphroditus with everything that they could gather to try and help him. And so he says to them in chapter four, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at last you've had revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I'm referring to be in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty in any and all circumstances. I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. They cared. They gave everything they could to try and keep him going. It got me thinking about me. Maybe you could think about you for just a moment. Who might be depending upon you? Who might be depending upon you? I mean, maybe you could think of a person right now that you could show this kind of love and concern to. Someone you could help. What could you do? I doubt they're in prison, but what could you do? A text that would just encourage somebody? A meal you could deliver to help a busy family? And an expression of hospitality by inviting a new person to your home just to share coffee or dessert or perhaps dinner with you? Maybe doing some yard work to help a senior in the summer's months. Taking somebody to the mountains who perhaps has mobility challenges, doesn't get the opportunity to go there very often. Helping busy parents that have got a new baby by offering to take the other kids and giving them a day of a little bit of respite and having some time to themselves. Visiting somebody that's in a care home or hospital. There's all sorts of opportunities. They're fairly limitless, actually, when we use our imagination. In chapter 2, Paul mentions he's sending the gift carrier, the messenger, Epaphroditus, back home. Epaphroditus has actually been unwell. He got sick when he got there, but he's feeling better, and he's sending him back. And Paul also tells him he's sending Timothy, his friend, along with him to help out with the responsibilities of pastoring and helping this church there. And he hopes that at some point he might be able to go himself and visit them and spend some time with them there. But meantime, he really wants to encourage them because he's thrilled about what God has been doing in the meantime. Even though he's in a tough place, he wants them to know how well things are actually going. He says this in chapter one, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, being in prison, has actually resulted in the progress of the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. <laughs> I mean, what I would consider, we would consider a disaster being arrested and tortured and imprisoned. He sees it as an opportunity, not because he's gone nuts or he's some kind of masochist. He sees it as an opportunity because somehow he has reframed the entire situation that he finds himself in. His perspective is different. He's not trying desperately to hold on to life in that sense, whether it's physical health or freedom. 
He's not desperately trying on to hold on to his reputation, his employment, his resources, his money, or his political power or rights. And as all this is happening to him, the followers of Jesus are becoming more courageous and sharing the story of Jesus with people round about him because they can see his example and what God has been doing in the difficult circumstances. Something else matters much more to Paul. Can you guess what? And as he shares all this personal news, we see some of the challenges that this little church is facing. They become into focus as their story and his story intertwine. He's mentioned prison, and it gets him and it gets us to the topic of human suffering. And some of them have been suffering. There are questions that we often ask. Why did God allow this? Why was my prayer not answered? Where are you, God? Do you not care? You even there? Paul doesn't actually supply the answers that we would like. In fact, he doesn't really address the questions the way we would. He sees everything differently. For instance, chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For he, God, has graciously granted you the privilege of not only believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. And nobody mentioned that to me when I signed up to be a follower of Jesus. But they should have. They should have. He goes on to say in chapter 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Hmm. You see, being in Christ, as he would say it, part of the body, part of the family, grafted into God's people, his church, it means we're all in it together, all of us with no exceptions. And that little phrase, in Christ, it kind of bundles us all there. It shows up in this letter 21 times one way or another. There's a sense of we're really joined to Jesus, that what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. But there's a sense of being joined to each other because as the followers of Jesus, we're all in this together. And when somebody struggles, we all struggle. When somebody's having a good time, so are we. There's a solidarity that comes to being in Christ. It's a phrase Paul loves to use in all of his letters. I think it's about 164 times it shows up. Because essentially there are two ways of being human. One he calls being an Adam and the other one he calls being in Christ. To be an Adam just happens. You don't need to do anything. It's not very difficult. You just get born, somebody spanks you in the bum, you start crying and off you go. You are now in Adam. That's it. But to be an Adam is not just because his name was first. Lauren Schmid says this, Adam's not the first man because he was first in the scene. Paul's interest is neither cultural nor biological. His interest is theological. Adam is first in the significance of what he did in response to God's commands. What did he do? He said no, effectively. He chose his own path become master of his own destiny. Nobody's going to tell me how to live. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. My life, my choice, stay out of it. That's who Adam was. And we're really just quite like him. We're in Adam. So here's the thing. To become a follower of Jesus is to find our identity in Christ, to have a relationship with Jesus. And somehow it means we're going to have to make the switch from being in Adam to being in Christ. But how does that happen? 
Well, it happens because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the story of Easter is all about. That Jesus, in sacrificing his life for us, is making something new. He's starting a whole new creation all over again. A new way of living, a new way of relating to God, a new way of being in God's family. That's the good news, that Jesus came to change everything. That we can shift from being in Adam to being in Christ. It happens as we respond to God's offer to us. It happens as we respond by confessing our sin, acknowledging the truth of who we are. It happens as we repent and swivel 180 as God enables us to do that, to begin to live life in a different way, led and empowered by the gift of his Holy Spirit living within us. It happens as we commit our lives wholeheartedly to Jesus and pledge our allegiance to him that Jesus is Lord. And Paul is inviting his friends in Philippi, and he's inviting us to reframe our questions and to reframe our situations as we look at them and to see all of it in the light of Jesus. Part of the reason that they've been suffering in Philippi is that there has been some opposition. People have been making life hard for this little church, and so Paul wants to encourage them. He says, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent and hear about you, I'll know that you're standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and in no way frightened by those opposing you. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation, and this is God's doing. There may be opposition, he's telling them, but you don't need to be frightened. We get to reframe and see these challenges in the light of the gospel of Jesus too. He's telling them God's got this, and he's got you too. Do you believe that? Hmm, maybe you don't. In fact, the bigger challenge, though, is internal to them. It's not just opposition outside. It's internal to the church. They were struggling to maintain unity, to be one people together. It was hard. And let's be honest, it is still hard to do that, to maintain unity and to be one together in Christ. In particular, there was a dispute between two of the leaders in their little church, And he writes about this in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And he talks about two ladies. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women. For they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. It's easy to disagree. We understand that. Euodia and Syntyche were not bad people. By all accounts, they were well-respected people within the church. As far as we can tell, they were significant leaders within that church too. But even good people can see things differently and fall out. It happens. It just does. But somewhere along the line, this had got completely out of hand and was making life difficult. It was a dispute that was beginning to poison the life of the church family. People were taking sides. Everybody's stress level was going up. Things were becoming challenging for the whole church. They were uptight, and more and more people were getting dragged into this mess. And while we're not sure of what it was about, it's a good reminder that when we read Paul's letters, we're actually reading other people's mail. This letter was not written directly to us, it was to them. We don't know all that was going on, we're just reading one part of the story. But it also reminds us as we read it, that Paul is far more interested in getting things right than what went wrong. 
He's far more interested in helping them than in scolding them. And so he pleads with them to agree in the Lord. He reminds them that they've shared in the work of the Lord together. They've been working together to make Jesus famous in their town and to lead people towards faith in Jesus Christ. He reminds them that their lives, their behavior, their talk should be consistent with the message of Jesus. He even points forward towards the life that is to come, reminding them, you're going to spend all eternity together, so you may as well figure this out now and get it sorted out before you've got endless time to work together. It's the gospel of Jesus. What Paul has been writing about all this time, what is it? It's the gospel of Jesus. I mean, look at these examples. Chapter 1, verse 4, 5. Always in every one of my prayers for all of you, he says, praying with joy for your partnership in the gospel. Look at that. From the first day until now. He goes on in verse 7. It's right for me to think this way of you because I hold you in my heart. For all of you are my partners in God's grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me has actually resulted in the progress of the gospel. Verse 12, I want you to know, or verse 16, these proclaim Christ out of love. He's talking about some people. Knowing that I've been put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 27, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent and hear about you, I will know that you're standing firm in one side, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. That's just chapter one. In chapter two, he begins to make everything clear in this beautiful poem or hymn about Jesus' life and purpose. Nobody really quite knows, did Paul write this or did he find it and use it because somebody else had written it? Either way, it is an amazing summary of what this gospel is. I've been using this new Bible translation, so I never get it quite right when I do this. I memorized it in a different one. But let me read this to you. These beautiful words, when he says the gospel, he says this. He's talking to the ladies, remember, about they've got to share. People have got to get their act together, get their minds set out. And he says this to them. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the gospel of Jesus. And as Paul writes to them, he's inviting them and he's inviting us to find our story located inside the story of Jesus. To reframe everything about us. The good, the bad, the challenging, the wonderful. Inside the light of Jesus. Because Jesus knows what it is to surrender his rights. Jesus knows what it is to humble himself. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Jesus knows what it is to serve others. Jesus knows what it is to die. Jesus knows. But it's not the end of the story. 
resurrected, ascended on high, exalted, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Yes, there's an ascent to the life of Jesus, but it begins with a descent. There's a descent that comes first, the downward path from the glory of heaven, the downward path towards humanity and the distress and destruction of chaos that we create, the downward path towards suffering and losing his life, except he didn't lose it, he surrendered it and gave it before that upward path of resurrection and glory and being with the Father again. He came to set us free. He came to make us new. He came to show us what life could be. He came to change, change you and me and the world that we live in. And as we begin to follow through the story of Jesus, we begin to understand how he would have us live, to live as a servant of others, to see others shine before we ever do, to be more interested to hear someone else's story than to share mine. To be more pleased at someone else's success than my own. To be more focused first and foremost on someone else rather than on myself. To look for the well-being of others, not just me. Paul is helping them and us to locate our story in the story of Jesus. Because when we are in Christ, we reframe our story, our experiences, our joys and our sorrows our celebrations and our heartaches, our expectations and our fears, we begin to see them all in the light of who Jesus is and everything changes. But how do you do that? I mean, it sounds nice, but how would you do it? How do you actually make that happen? He's got a simple suggestion for us, actually. You find it in chapter four, verses eight and nine. And he says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As for the things that you've learned and received and heard and noticed in me, do them and the God of peace will be with you. The invitation is to change up our thinking, to reframe our lives, to realize that our story will have eternal significance because of Jesus' story and that he gathers up everything about us, past, present, and future into the story of his redemptive love. Jesus' story of being born in Bethlehem, the incarnation, of working his way around Judea and Galilee, sharing good news, the story of his death on a Roman cross, the story of his resurrection on the third day, the story of his ascension on high, the story that one day he will come again. It reminds us that our past doesn't have to determine our future, that our past does not mark us forever as though nothing can change because when our story is wrapped in Jesus' story, the possibilities become absolutely endless. Our future is not defined by what we've done, but by who Jesus is. Because we're forgiven, we are in Christ, and God is with us. The story of Jesus' suffering and obedience, it reinterprets our story of pain and struggle at times as we look to Him who looked towards the future. And for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross in its shame because of us and for us. Jesus' story reminds us that the final destruction of sin and death is still to come. 
And that means we still live in a broken, fallen world where people hurt us and sometimes we hurt other people. We live in a world where sickness comes and pain is a reality and grief is very real to us. And yet the story of Jesus does not end in a cross, but in a resurrection. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. The story of the destruction of evil is not over yet, but it will be. And the things that are wrong and bad will be undone forever because Jesus wins. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. People do refer to this letter to the Philippians as a letter filled with joy. And no wonder. It is all about Jesus. That's where we start. Because Jesus is the one who changes everything. When we call on Jesus, when we believe in him, we place our trust in him. We give him our allegiance and he changes everything. We get to reframe everything as we look at who he is, what he's done, what he's given to us, and the promises he will keep. But here's the question, really. Have you begun a relationship with Jesus and discovered your identity in him? Are you discovering a new way of living in Christ? where you're actually changing and allowing God to change your life. Do people know that? Do they see it? When they see you, do they see you changing and becoming like Jesus? Do people notice the difference? Have you allowed him to reframe your story, the joys and expectations and the hurts and crushing failures? Have you allowed him to do that? Or is the truth We've just left him on red and said nothing. And so, Father, today we want to pray. We want to say and respond somehow to you. And for some of us, we've been around a long time at church. But we've never actually responded. Not really. And today, by your Spirit, we want to choose to say yes to Jesus. Thank you that he came and suffered and died for me. Thank you that he rose again in victory to set me free. And so, Lord, today, as you pray with me, perhaps I'm just a person that's never actually said yes to Jesus, albeit I'm here. And today I choose to. I want to pledge my allegiance to him. And so I pray as I look to the past that you would forgive me and make me new. I pray that as I confess the reality of my life and my sin, that you would be the one who makes me brand new and forgiven today. And that as I try by the power of your spirit to change my life, that you would do the changing, that you'd make me your child, that today I would discover what it is to be in Christ and be part of your family. And so say, today I say yes to you. And for many of us who have been following Jesus, but we're stuck, Lord, we want to pray. Because sometimes we just left your word unread too. We've read it, but we've not done much about it. And thank you today that your gracious invitation comes to simply say, Jesus, I want to find my story in your story. And I confess that I've spent a lot of time just feeling sorry for myself or being angry at me or with others or with you. But today I want to reframe my story inside Jesus' story. And I pray you'd help me because that's not easy. My pain is real. My fears are real. The grief is real. Would you help me to see all that I am and has happened to me inside the amazing story of Jesus who's promised that he's making everything new? Would you make me new today? And help me, I pray, 
to live and to follow as these people did, trusting you for everything and in everything, knowing that you have me, you've got us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the joy that you long to fill our hearts with, even in difficult times. Help us, we pray, to look to Jesus in his name. Amen.